Hey, it's Chris P. I'm going to be coming up on Fly Fidelity. We make cartoons at my studio, Titmouse, like Big Mouth and the Venture Brothers and Metal Eclipse and others you've heard of. Hey, what's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Fly Fidelity. I'm your host, Luke Bailey. Incredible content for incredible times, and make sure you follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud if you aren't already. Also, make sure you check us out at flyfidelity.co.uk. And now for the main event. I stare out at this majestic scene. Here we see the cycle of life. There are beautiful, wondrous worlds full of intelligent beings with stories to tell. And I'm going to interview them and put my interviews online and make a bunch of money to suck my dick. Shit. Fly Fidelity, credible content for incredible time. Special guest Chris Pranoski is with us, the owner and founder of Titmouse Studio. I want to say right off the bat, congratulations on being nominated for as many as four Titmouse shows at the upcoming Annie Awards, one show of which being a favourite of mine. Of course, I'm talking about the Midnight Gospel. What can you tell me about the process of, of, of translating a podcast into what's essentially Titmouse Studios' most unique show to date. Oh, yeah, that one was pretty unique. It was like, uh, you know, Penn Ward is a guy I've known for a while, uh, the co-creator along with Duncan, who, uh, you know, Penn did Adventure Time before then and uh, was a fan of Duncan's podcast and brought him on to do voices. And I had uh, been playing uh, D&D with Penn for years. Uh, We knew each other through, like, animation and gaming and you know, it always talked about working together and actually played in a game where he brought Duncan into that game once and got along well with Duncan and Penn and Duncan pitched this idea to Netflix and came to us and said that they wanted to do it at our, at our studio. And, uh, we had to figure out a pipeline to make it work because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something like, you know, if you, 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 you know, there's been other animated shows based on podcasts, like, like if you remember that Ricky Gervais show where, but it was basically just a very literal translation. It was like they were sitting around a table with microphones and you were like illustrating what they were talking about. It was presented as an animated podcast. And I think a lot of these things are presenting like the stories that are being told, whether it's, you know, the party legends shows or whatever these kind of shows are, the tales from the tour bus. It's like kind of illustrating what's happening. Uh, Penn and Duncan had a very different idea where they wanted a narrative that really, you know, thematically maybe crossed paths with what they were talking about, but really didn't literally describe anything that they were talking about and had its own story. And Penn had started to do a board that that showcased this, which was great. You know, he boarded it to the audio track, but we really had to figure out how to make it a story and how to augment it. And the editors would work with Penn and Duncan on kind of cutting together a, a radio play, 
but then they'd have to go back and record filler stuff like secondary voices or even maybe bring back the guests in some cases to record voices and Duncan would do voices to to fill in the gaps in the story and then we'd also brainstorm there was a couple weeks of brainstorming in a writer's room about like what will the visuals be um and then uh you know the storyboard team was was very helpful in in the writing process you know it was a very board driven show on the visuals to kind of like tell the visual story under Penn's guidance so so it really was like something we had to figure out as we went along it, there, there's no other show we've produced that's been like this you mentioned the Ricky Gervais show and the Midnight Gospel and the differences between the two and that difference being world building isn't it was that process in world building ever a challenge for you you know, it was a challenge only in that um, there are so many crazy ideas, you know, in that, you know, we we did, uh, you know, a limited amount of episodes and there were so many ideas of weird, weird worlds. You know, if you get, you know, brains like Penn and, and all sorts of other people that were in that room together to brainstorm on ideas, you, you end up with a lot. And it's really the decision making process was one of the harder parts uh the coming up with crazy ideas you know it's, it's like that a lot of times right like editing is often harder than the writing process it's like you know if you i forget whose quote it is i'm gonna mess it up but it's like if i had more time i would have wrote you a shorter letter you know <laughs> it's like that's the process it's the the getting it down and deciding and and, and cutting and figuring out what it is is the hard part You know, I think of Netflix now as like Hunter S. Thompson and level of gonzo insanity. Like when I consider what they let us do, right. it's it's not just like, wow, they took a risk. It's like, wow, like, were you guys on a bender or something when you let us do this? <laughs> like, there, you know what I mean? There was, there's no, we showed them, um, we showed them three, I, maybe six minutes of an animatic Pendleton did. And we gave them this idea, which I did. We didn't tiptoe around. I even told them, you know, those lantern-headed creatures uh, that you milk for green oil. I was like telling them, like, yeah, I, I saw them in a DMT vision at Burning Man. And I remember, is that slipping out of my mouth? You know, this my stomach dropping, and I'm about to look over at Pendleton apologetically, like I guess I blew it, man. And then I look around. And they're laughing and they're like, whoa, that's wow. cool. And then they ordered a bunch of episodes. And then they didn't just order the episodes, but they really, really, really let us follow our instincts. And there were a few times where they gave us some notes, but those notes were almost always, I, I would say 100% of the time, we agreed with it. And then, and so, and then, and then somewhere along the course of the production, you know, we all got into a true collaboration, which I think uh, is, an, is maybe going to be the new normal. You got your come up working as a storyboard artist revisionist for MTV in the grimy 90s at a time when nothing was off limits and everything was permitted. What are your strongest memories of working at MTV from 94 to 99 amid so much rebellion and experimentation in animation? 
man, it that was a really good time. That was a really fun shop. It was, you know, I was really young, uh, you know, started there when I was 22 and, you know, it was just fun. Like I didn't know enough about schedules and things to ever worry about that stuff. I just did my drawings and tried to tell the best stories. It's also great to come up under people like Mike judge and, you know, the, the directors and, you know, everybody at, at MTV, you know, it, it, the Beavis and Butthead was certainly a, a great, like uh comedy school, you know, a character comedy school, character forward, you know, character, not, not, it wasn't a show about being clever about every character saying lines like they were, you know, had like, uh, you know, like they were sitcom characters that always had a clever quip or a funny, like cleverly cl crafted line. They're really more about, you know, just just unadulterated honesty in their in their feelings and and their stupidity. And uh, and it was funny and it, and 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 iterating on the audio track and stuff in the boards. You know, it, it was always it, such a good experience. Um, and it was like very, even though it was owned by a big corporation you know as part of viacom it never felt like it mtv animation was kind of off the yeah we were even out of we weren't even in 1515 which was the main building in in times square we started in a building well i started they started at 1515 initially and then when it grew they kind of rented a floor of this weird office building that donald trump ended up buying and kicking everybody out of and then we went down the street and started another building and uh, we never were with the with the proper MTV uh, like network. We were we were kind of like off on our own, which I think also helped uh, give it a different vibe. It felt very much like when I started working with Adult Swim, you know, a few years later, it felt very much like that early MTV vibe. I think if MTV had had not kind of like gone down the reality show path and and gotten away from the music stuff they could have become what adult swim eventually became they were set up they were teed up to be there and then it kind of crumbled at some point this vibe you're talking about would you describe this vibe as being almost punk-esque yeah yeah for sure i mean that's that's yeah it was very very freewheeling i mean it was just there didn't seem to be any rules that you know those shows too back it back in the days mtv uh, you know, which seems bizarre by today's standards was like no, nothing was uh, any kind of union. There was no SAG, no no voice actor union, which is usually the union that's on everything. So what was cool about those shows was like we would all chime in and do voices on each other's shows. You know, there's a lot of the, the staff that, were, you know, it, was, it felt like a big old art project as opposed to like making a show for a network. It's also cool when you're working on a show that's popular, you know, it's, it, it gives you, gives you a lot of confidence, you know, you can, you can play around and, and mess around more because you know, it's, 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 it's being well received. And of course, at this point, Beavis and Butthead is, it's already a huge hit. It's a huge show already. What's the storyboard process like when you're collaborating with somebody as visionary as Mike Judge and a production team is, was it always an easy process to make the boards as funny as the track was? You know, it's, 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 a, it, the, I'm going to go back to editing and reduction. You know, the, 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 what I learned pretty quickly was don't do any of the things 
that you've been taught to do as an animator. <laughs> you know, it's like the the you know all the principles of animation. Ignore those. Anything that you've been taught about like making a show like cartoony and and funny in a traditional sense, don't do any of that stuff. The show was funniest when they didn't move a lot, when they acted like real people, when they didn't have big cartoony reactions or do anything that was in a sense like what you would call a, a traditional animated show. You know, at the same time, uh, Ren and Stimpy was blowing up and becoming a big popular show. We were on the same kind of path, same kind of track. And that show was all about like digging into traditional animation and making it as wacky and big and broad and like Tex Avery inspired as possible. And Beavis and Butthead was like the the opposite side of that coin of like don't don't do any of that stuff. Comedy first, character first, animation, drawing skill, uh super secondary to comedy. No one can truly predict the future. I think you are not the A students. But it's possible to make an educated guess. See? I don't think so. Which is why MTV predicts that this Saturday you'll be able to watch five of the stupidest hours of television you've ever seen, featuring two all-new brain-killing cartoons. The Beavis and Butthead Marathon, Saturday night at 10. Part of a very rosy future. Yeah, <laughs> it's uplifting. <laughs> What were some of those earliest conversations like with Mike Judge about his vision in the beginning? Well, you know, I came on during the fourth season. So the show was already off and running and it was a hit already. So in the beginning for me wasn't in the beginning for that show. So it was a pretty well-oiled machine. I think it was good. What was good is just always approachable and always would talk to you. And he was still in New York when I started. He ended up moving back to Austin, Texas during the production. Um, and I did end up spending a lot of time with him uh, when we were working on the Beavis and Butthead movie because he was out in L.A., uh, you know, developing King of the Hill and working on the movie. And they felt MTV felt, you know, like Mike Judge was going to be flying back and forth between L.A. and New York. So they would just fly us out to L.A. to work with them. So my first directing gig actually was they let me direct a sequence in the beavis and butthead do america where they trip out on peyote so i would sit around and basically sit in the corner of his office at fox and like drawing my sketchbook while he was developing king of the hill and like how about this and he'd be like oh yeah that's cool how about this uh, maybe don't do that and um and even I, I remember i didn't have a rental car either for some reason so he would pick me up or we were staying in the same hotel i can't remember but i would drive basically i'd drive to fox and i'd drive to paramount with him <laughs> it was interesting to get his perspective on stuff in that capacity i took your father's mixtape and hucked it into the ocean right then and there i vowed i would never see him again <laughs> she said wood <laughs> that was cool <laughs> wood wood <laughs> you're right wood <laughs> Were you watching many live-action films in the process of storyboarding for Beavis and Butter Do America for any kind of benchmark or, or source of inspiration? Are you watching live-action films? Uh, you know, I always like watching live-action films. For For that film, that was a... We were trying to go more cinematic than the show, but 
I have to say there's a certain amount you don't want to push too far out of the realm of what works in that show. So, yes, you know, you, I might have been influenced by live action, like storytelling and, and shot progression. But, um, you know, you always had to be careful not to not to. To fuck up what war can I can I curse on this show? Absolutely, so, we encourage yeah. it, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, to not fuck up what works about Beavis and Butthead, and that's like you know you don't don't like to shoot them at like high angles or low angles or or crazy you know camera angles for no reason because they play their comedy plays the best when they're kind of shot straight on, you know, almost looking at the camera. <laughs> You know, butthead at least looking at the camera. It was just like, that's what worked, and that's what's funny. And uh, the hardest thing, though, because I was doing, I did boards, and then I went on to layouts. For anybody who's not familiar with the animation process, layout is a process where you you, you take the storyboards and you take all the designs, and you you do the stage before animation where you're you're putting all the you know you're drawing all the characters in their their kind of key poses getting it right their scale and their and their their model is all set up for an animator to animate it right and i somehow i i had a, a little folder this is before we had internet access at the you know internet was pretty pretty in its infancy back then so i had this like binder with a bunch of uh, pictures of men in suits in various poses and I got good at drawing suits and there was like the 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 ATF agent played by I think it was played by Robert Stack and and his his like other agents were would wear suits and I got all the drawing suits scenes <laughs> because I seemed to be able to draw suits which suits are super tough to draw. If, yeah, I uh, can imagine that because everybody knows what they look like but not everybody thinks about how they work. So when you draw them wrong, people can immediately tell if it's wrong. <laughs> So that was one of the biggest challenges in storyboarding for the film. Yeah, you know, it's just like st stupid stuff like that. It's always stuff like that. It's never the things that you think are. It's like, oh, the big car chase sequence. No, that's easy, man. You just got to make it dynamic. Things that move quick and crazy. Like, that's the stuff. I mean, it might take a lot of, like, pencil mileage to draw that stuff, but it's not hard to to brain out, right? But, like, simple simple su subtlety subtlety is the hardest thing to do in animation that's another reason why Peepus and butthead was hard you know you might look at that show and think like oh it's easy man you know because it has this people have this sense of like oh it's it's in a wrong wrong sense of like oh it's poorly drawn it's not poorly it's kind of like specifically drawn there's something very funny about the way you know those characters came out of Mike's hand and you didn't want to mess with that. And if you did mess with it, it really just looked wrong. You know, it was, it, it was a challenge to hit the, the subtlety of those characters. There's a singularity he's trying to maintain and you're trying to maintain as creators making this show. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta always be on point with that stuff, man. It's crazy. What about the future for the show? Are you in any way attached to Paramount Plus's reboot of Beavis and Butthead? You know, I, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about that just That's yet. That's cool. I respect yeah. that, of course. <laughs> of course. That's a yes. <laughs> I don't know. That's not an answer right there. Gentlemen. Uh, hey, baby. Hey, how's it going? 
It's been almost two decades since your show first aired on MTV. <laughs> MTV of old. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so, since your show has aired, representation on television has been changing. How will your show plan to lift up the experiences of marginalized voices? For example, people of color or the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, uh, what was the question? <laughs> the media landscape is changing, and research shows Gen Z is demanding more from the content that they consume. So I'm trying to understand why you and why now. I thought it was because we're stupid. <laughs> yeah, I'm not very smart. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, drive through. <laughs> What about Daria? Daria was one of the iconic characters of that time next to Beavis and Butthead, a one-of-a-kind on TV, one-of-a-kind as a character who had this willingness to talk about real issues like race and gender and identity that now feel more timely than ever before. Did you know that whilst you were storyboarding, Daria would shape a generation of women? I didn't know that. Uh, you know, we were, you know, coming off of... Um... Beavis and Butthead, and you know we were on a on a roll. There's a lot of shows happening at MTV, and it was a cool, fun show. Um, and uh, you know when I, I directed a little bit on the first season of that, that was I just worked on the first season. And the thing about that show was th there was a very similar type of directive of like don't move the characters a lot, don't do a lot of fancy shots and things like that. Uh, and I don't think I realized the cultural impact at the time. You know, we were working on so many crazy shows of all different points of view that it all seemed like we were pushing it on everything. Um, and yeah, I don't. I, I think obviously, in as the years went by, I realized the the cultural impact of that show. But when I was working on it, it just seemed like a well written, funny, cool show. Another another one that we were that we were lucky. It really was. I was lucky to work on a bunch of really good shows when I was young. You know, when I first started my career, which really educated me. And then when I went out to L.A. and I started to work on other kinds of shows. I realized like, oh, not every script is really good and funny when you get it. Like, you know, like I kind of was spoiled, you know, in my early career, like the material was great and I just had to make it better. And then, you know, as I started getting more into directing and supervising directing and eventually show running stuff, it's like, oh, man, sometimes you really got to figure out how to make this stuff work. It's not always genius out of the gate. So, you know. Uh, Beavis and, and Daria were really good for that. Even The Head, which is a show I worked on early on, created by Eric Vogel, was such – it was ahead of its time in many ways. It feels much more like an adult swim show than than any of the shows did. Uh, it was so surreal and I think had the first openly gay character in an animated show way back when, like in 94 or something. So, yeah, really interesting. Speaking of shows that were ahead of their time, how does Downtown come about in 99, which you create on the cusp of, you know, the smartphone age of people looking down at their phone every every second? And it's <laughs> yeah. a show based on real conversations with real New Yorkers. What was it like transitioning from Beavis and Butthead to writing and directing Downtown? Well, that was an interesting one because I, you know, I'd been 
you know, kind of working with, with, you know, did some station IDs and did some, worked on some pilots and, you know, I guess caught the attention of the, the execs and they gave me a, you know, what they call a, a development deal. So they're like, Hey, we're going to give you some money. You go off, work on some show ideas and then we get the first stab at them. So come back and pitch us stuff. And I'd made a bunch of ideas that were really weird and really cartoony. And I was looking at my deck that I was going to pitch to them. And I was like, you know, none of these really feel like an MTV show. They feel like way weirder and cartoonier. So let me, uh, I'd done a student film where I recorded real audio and it kind of followed some, some teenagers around, and, you know, doing New Yorky kind of stuff. And I was like, I'll take a frame from that and I'll just throw it on the last page and say like, downtown what do you do in new york uh at night when you're 15 you know downtown answers that question had no idea what the show was going to be of course that's the one that they greenlit they were like all right do this one I'm like oh shit i gotta figure out what this is and i was like what if we really do this like cinema verite style hasn't been done in adult animation you know the hubblies and stuff would do that with their kids you know where they would just record and, you know, people talking, I was also a big fan of Ralph Bakshi, you know, where he really captured the spirit of New York in the 70s. So I was like, I want to do a thing where we walk around the Lower East Side of New York and just interview people. We're going to bring it back, cut that audio together and animate to it. And it's going to be like this cool art project. It's going to be like kind of like Slacker or Kids or something like that, but animated. Right. That was that was my one of my influences at the time. We did that. But then the 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 executive landscape changed at MTV after it was greenlit the series. And they're like, you know, it's, we're not going to take a risk on a, on something like this. We don't, you don't even have a, a character, you know, I'm a main character. So they're like, you got to write some scripts. You got to make it uh, more of a traditional show. So, and, and I think it was an interesting challenge because we used, we cast many of the people we met on the street as the voice talent. So it was a lot of people who hadn't ever acted and weren't professional actors. And we used, a lot of the stories that we gleaned from, you know, people telling these stories to us as the as the plots and subplots of these shows. So I think it had an authenticity and it really was my desire and and it paid off because now it's 20 years later, over 20 years later. And uh, I really wanted it to have that feel of like when I watch a 70s backsheet film in the 90s, it feels like it's New York in the 70s. And I really wanted to capture like New York in 1999. And that's what I think it does. It feels like that. If anybody who's lived in New York in that era, really, they always tell me that it feels like I, I, I got that, got that part of it. <laughs> it really does. It really does. What's the difference between being a New Yorker and being an animator in LA? Uh, well, you know, from a, from a career perspective and from an experience perspective, New York traditionally has had way less work and way less studios, right? New York used to be much more the center of like commercial, the commercial industry and some, some TV and movies, there's always been a little bit, you know, Fleischer started in New York, but it hasn't, it never blew. I mean, Disney, you know, and Hanna-Barbera and Warner brothers and all this stuff, you know, LA is the, is the main stage for animation in the world. Right. You can argue maybe that, you know, Japan, you know, is a different stage, but, 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 you know, Hollywood being the entertainment capital and, 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 you know, animation firmly rooted in there. There's just so many more productions that happen in LA. So you can really groom yourself to be a specific type of role in the animation industry in LA. You can be like, Hey, I want to do character design 
and you can work towards that. And, you, and there's enough character design jobs. You could be a character designer for your entire career and never have to work in another discipline. Right. In New York, there's just not as much work to go around. So everybody becomes to some degree or another a jack of all trades. You got to learn to animate a little, got to learn to design a little, do some layouts, do some storyboards. Maybe you direct something. Maybe you go back to doing storyboards, you know, whatever. So I think people from New York end up by necessity just, you know, be, are, are become less specialized and more general. And, and, and some of them do become specialized, but they still have had to work on other things. I mean, I had to, when I was storyboarding at, at, at MTV, I was working as a, as an animator, uh, on commercials as my freelance work. That's what I do at night and work on, uh, work. You do animation. I think it helps sport, you know, it's, it's a helpful thing. And I, I do have to say a lot of people I know who've, who've, who've started in New York and gone out to LA have had a lot of success because of that. There's also a kind of insane work ethic. That's, that's just a part of New York, the part of the, the speed and the, the hustle of New York that sets you up well, where people who come from other places to LA think that LA is a fast paced city. And when you come from New York and you go to LA, you're like, this town is like a sleepy little suburb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't seem too daunting. Yeah. While you are listening to this recording, your willing attention is helping you to become more and more deeply relaxed. I know you're going to dig this. Looks a normal mother of what is it? Are you comfortable? Isn't Mother Nature wonderful? The whole scene is so 1989. It's so ancient. Let's just pretend that the last 24 hours never happened. I mean, we briefly touched on the reboot of Beavers and Butthead. Can you talk about your role as executive producer for the revival of Liquid TV from 2013 to 2014? It was a big institution oh, yeah. almost in New York at that time, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, in, when I was in school, you know, I, I went to art school, to School of Visual Arts in New York from 1990 to 94, right? And I worked on a couple of liquid TV shorts back then when it was in its like prime, you know, that some of the freelance work that I would do as a student, you know, it, that that was another good way to get experience as a student. I'd just try and take jobs. And the only people that would hire a student were generally these liquid TV shorts because they had no budgets and they couldn't afford to hire like a real animator. You know, like one of them I did as an internship and I animated a bunch of stuff for free. And I think at the end of the summer, they gave me like 400 bucks. They're like, we got to pay you something. You animated so much of this thing. Um, you know, and then the other one was uh, one with John Dilworth, who ended up to create uh, Courage the Cowardly Dog. Um, but anyway, so I, so I started on that. And of course, Beavis and Butthead grew out of that. And Aeon Flux and a lot of other things. Uh, so it was cool 
to kind of be approached to uh, to reboot that, you know, that kind of they kind of came to me and said, hey, you're you're doing a lot of Adult Swim stuff. Your your studio has doesn't have like a house style. Can you help us curate this and produce some stuff? And and we pitched back to them what what I really was. And who knows if it was the right idea at the time. I was like, you can't you can't chase Adult Swim. You can't try and make absurdist comedy because they they do it so well. And it's it's taken. So we got to come at it from a different angle. Also, there's YouTube and other outlets on the Internet where you could just watch animated shorts. So we've got to kind of have a point of view. And the point of view that we took was really going more back to the to the base, the root of MTV, which was like like music videos and artistic expression. I was like, hey, let's not dig so much into comedy 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 there was some funny stuff in there but let's let's dig into like artfully done animation and even animated music videos and that's the path that we took and uh i think it was an, a successful execution of that angle i don't think that it uh you know was considered a success by mtv uh but i think it's a success for people who like weirdo weirdo artsy shit like me Hey, everybody in the whole world, we're just luck, and you can just our trillionaire. Watch a Metalocalypse marathon Friday starting at midnight on Adult Swim. As a network, Adult Swim introduced so many people, including myself, to the entertainment that we really needed growing up the same way. MTV as a network really honed in on the sensibilities of your generation and spoke to yourself. What are some of your favorite collaborations with Adult Swim that resonate with you on a personal level? Well, I'll always be super fond of Metalocalypse. I mean, that's the first one we did. That's the first series we did out of our shop. That's the one that needed the most help from us. That's the one that I was directing on and, and you know, producing on from the get-go you know, drawing that, that had that art shop vibe, that big art project vibe that we had at MTV. It really, really felt special. You know, Brendan and Tommy were so funny. John, all the guys I knew, you know, Brendan, Tommy and John Schnepp, the other director were guys that I knew coming up and, and, and Schnepp was a really good friend of mine. I don't know if you know anything about him. He passed away a couple of years ago and it was just a great friend. And that time was such a formative time in in the life of the studio and, and my life. And another one that we, we knew, you know, when I was kind of working on that, I was like, I have the same feeling about this show that I had on Beavis and Butthead. This works in a way that is so good that I knew it was going to be, it was going to be good, you know, and it, and it was, and it was successful. Um, so that, that one is the, the nearest and dearest to me of all the adult swim shows we've done. But, you know, I love a bunch of them, you know, uh, China, Illinois, that was originally Professor Brothers. I co-directed the pilot of that with Brad Neely. Um, you know, Black Dynamite was a, a great experience. Super Jail was amazing. Christy Krakis is a guy I've known forever. We 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 lived a block away from each other in Brooklyn and both worked at MTV. We both worked on Daria. Um, uh, Chris McCulloch, a.k.a. Jackson Public, is a guy I've known since I've been college. We didn't start Venture Brothers, but we took it over and you know, we had always helped him record when he recorded in L.A. and and when he was looking for a new place, uh, we took that over and I really, really enjoyed 
Venture Brothers. Um, and there's a bunch of pilots that we did, you know, some that I directed that never that never went, but they were really fun. We did one for a major laser that was really good and I think no one will ever see. <laughs> and then uh, Fox ended up doing a different take on that, but I, I always liked ours better. Um uh yeah, King Star King was such an innovative and crazy show for for Adult Swim that that was crazy. And Tigtone, one of the more recent shows we've done, is such a such a bizarre technique. I, I really dig that technique that uh, that we came, you know, that we've and I didn't come up with it. You know, it was the it was a brain trust of people. You know, um, Ben and Andrew who, who created the show kind of stumbled their way into figuring out how to do animation because they weren't traditional animators and came up with this motion capture technique on paintings and. You know, one of the hardest things, not unlike the Beavis and Butthead thing that I was talking about before, was making sure that the animators kept it reduced because that's what was funny about it. Because the animators could have animated the characters super fluidly and beautifully, and but it wouldn't have been as funny. I think there was something so surreal and so bizarre about the super smooth motion capture faces and the herky-jerky style of the way the bodies and the rest of the world moved that that made it made it really work for me a hero's quest a quest begins with a simple quest the world is at stake the world is at stake soon you will know his name you are in for some trouble tiktone tiktone is my middle name for he begins tonight at midnight on Adult Swim. So how does Titmouse happen and evolve to this animation empire that people know it as now? What's the story behind you forming your own studio, which you've said in the past started as an accident? Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it truly was. Uh, basically, you know, I was working at the studios, you know, directing and show running and eventually creating shows and stuff. And you know, basically that was my gig, right? I'd, I'd made it. I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm running these shows. This is awesome. This is my thing. And I'd seen, you know, in the first kind of internet animation boom, you know, there's a bunch of smaller studios, you know, those kind of like flash studios that they called them at the time. And, and a friend of mine started one and they got venture capitalist money and Shannon, my wife worked for them as a color stylist. And I saw how their studio worked and it, uh, it didn't seem to have a business model. It was cool, but, and then it all kind of fell apart when they didn't make money and the venture capitalist took everything and sold it and they couldn't continue. And, uh, I was like, man, I think it'd be fun to make some cartoons on the internet, but I can't, uh, I'm not going to start a studio. I'm going to start a t-shirt company. Cause that sounds like fun. And I had done some t-shirts in New York. This is when I was out in LA and I was like, I'm make some t-shirts, sell them on the internet. Seems like a new thing to do. And it was harder to set up an internet shop back then. There weren't like plug and play things. It was all this, you know, programming you had to do and bank accounts you had to set up for business. Not now you could just like, you can do it in 10 minutes. It took a lot of research. Um, and I was like, Hey, instead of trying to have the thing of like, Hey, we'll have a cartoon and that's the main event. And then we'll try and sell you stuff if you like the cartoon. We'll have a site that sells T-shirts with weird designs. And guess what? Weird bonus. There's even a cartoon of this T-shirt. Weird. Cool. You know, so it was just a psychological difference. Anyway, the T-shirt business didn't really work out. We never made money. It was fun to do. Didn't really lose money. It just kind of broke even. But it, I kind of started to abandon it 
but I kept getting freelance animation work. And then eventually I was doing this, um, sh- this working on this movie called Freddy got finger. And, uh, they were like, Hey, we want to hire you to do the animation. And they were like, Hey, wh-? I was on the phone with like 20th century Fox. And they were like, Hey, what's your production company? And I like, I don't have a production company. I'm just a dude. And there was like silence on the other side of the line. And then I was like, I mean, I have a, production company titmouse we're a real business i could send you the information and then so we did that deal through titmouse and shannon had had been producing commercials and stuff and she kind of stopped working for the company she was working for to just produce like my freelance work under titmouse and she's like man this is way better to do it through this company It, it saves us money in taxes and whatnot you know and then we're like i guess this is a company and then a few years later, she convinced me to – I was working at Cartoon Network running this show called Megas XLR, which is a giant robot with a like a hot rod car for a head and a dumb guy from New Jersey who just used it to smash stuff. Real fun show. Um, and uh, But I was – Shannon was like, you got to quit. You got to quit your job and focus on Tidmouse. I was like, that's, that's, that's a big risk. This, you know, if I jump off an existing show – that's a guaranteed income and it might be burning a bridge and, and, and I don't know, man, that's how we make money. And she was like, if you quit cartoon network and focus on tip mouse, this'll be your job and this'll be the way we make money. And we didn't have a house or kids or anything at the time. So I was like, all right, we'll give it a shot. And, uh, we didn't know anything about business. I've read two books, uh, by this guy, Robert Koyasaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and Cash Flow Quadrant. And that was our whole business education. <laughs> we were <laughs> off to the races and just kind of stumbled through it. And here we are now. Hi. 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 I'm X-Ray Cat. I've got superpowers. I can see through wooden doors with my x-ray vision, wooden doors. I can see the criminal on the other side. He can't see me and he's committing crime. I come along and say, I can see you. He said, you can't see me. I say, yes, I can. With my x-ray, x-ray cat. You can't get me, you can't get me. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. See a little, the, the bananas. I know a banana, liver jobs, telephone repairman. Guy came and said, you want a job here? And he said, yeah, I want to get jobs, telephone repairman. He said, you got the job. You got the job, buddy. <laughs> then the beavers came. The beavers started yelling at another beaver. The beavers started yelling at the other beaver. He said, you're stupid beaver. You're stupid. <laughs> You mentioned working on Freddy Got Fingered. What was that experience like? Uh, it was pretty fun where I was sitting, you know, Tom Green and, 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 uh, you know, Tom Green was great cause we were the fun part, right? We were, we were just doing the cartoon part and I also did all the drawings that were meant to be, um, uh, you know, his characters, right. animation drawings. So I could say, this is one of the things that I can be proud of in my career that, uh, Rip Torn jammed one of my drawings up his asshole, which is a, a great distinction to have, you know, uh, which is pretty cool. I don't think anybody else could say that about their their career. So that's pretty cool. But anyway, it was fun getting together with him. So he did a lot of improv. It was an entirely different concept at the beginning. It was called X-Ray Cat. 
and then he, he basically improved the zebras in America, which is what it ended up becoming. And and uh, oh, also my wife was real happy because he was he was dating or maybe even married to Drew Barrymore at that time, so she got to hang out with Drew Barrymore, which was cool for her. Um, as we, you know, as I sat in the booth with, with Tom Green and he improved for hours um, on that stuff, <laughs> uh, but it was fun and it was really organic and I really liked working with him. And he's a guy who I think had that vibe. You know, he really had that Adult Swim vibe before. That's when I felt like. If MTV kept on that track, man, they could have become, you know, they could have become Adult Swim. And a lot of things followed in his footsteps. I mean, obviously, the Eric Andre show was influenced by him. Jackass was influenced by him. A lot of things that came after MTV or Adult Swim were influenced by his his sensibility. We're both 30. Do you know how old 30 is in Hollywood? What's been the missing element in everything that we've attempted so far? Success. We need an instant fame plan. Let's go be heroes. Our gift to you. It's mine, man. We've been going about it all wrong. It's not fame we need. It's infamy. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> it's hot on my face. So how does Nerdland come about? Oh, that came about by, um, you know, Andy Kevin Walker, who's a incredibly talented screenwriter he wrote the movie seven you know he's worked with david fincher on many projects he's incredibly you know just he's he's a great talent just reached out to us it was the most bizarre thing he is a huge fan of metalocalypse huge fan of beavis and butthead he did his research and i'm the only guy that had the overlap that you know had a major role in both my agent called me up he's like hey this guy uh, has a movie they want to independently finance the script is ready read it if you want to do it uh, they are offering it to you uh, and I read it I got along with him and Gavin the producer great I love him he's a great friend to this day and loved the subject matter and we were off to the races and we did it on a very shoestring budget um, but it was a ton of fun to make I can imagine and, and as a director do you have a specific preference for the submission of storyboards when you're working on and directing an episode or film yeah actually that's a that's a pretty uh insightful question uh the uh i like to get r rougher stuff faster like i think you you sit with the script or whatever if it's a board driven show you sit with a treatment if it's a script driven show you sit with a script you do a handout with the board artists and if you're a you know, if you're a supervising director or showrunner, you work with the, the episode director. If you're doing a movie or something, you, you work just directly with the board artist, maybe the head of story as well, if you have a head of story. Um, and you go through page by page and you kind of talk about like, this is what I want very specifically. And you maybe do some thumbnails or walk them through it. And this part, you know, I don't have a lot of specifics. You, you're free to, to figure this out on your own. And then what I like to do, like if it's if it's a TV show, right? Uh, like if I'm doing uh, like a 22 minute show with three board artists and they're each doing an act or so about it, they're breaking up into thirds. I want to see their thumbnails in a couple days. I'm like, don't overthink it. Your first thought, get your first thought down, draw thumbnails that are truly like the size of a thumbnail on the script and pitch, pitch it to me before you get too deep and too precious. Cause one thing that happens with everybody, once you put a lot of work into something, it's hard to let go. 
even if you know it's the right thing to let it go. It's a problem I think we're even seeing in politics and stuff when people double down in, into into their tribes uh, and then even maybe in, the, in their heart of hearts, they know that what they've what they've been saying might not be true. It's hard to double back because it means admitting they're wrong and throwing stuff away. There's an emotional thing with storyboards or drawings too, that even if you know it doesn't work in the story anymore, it's like, Oh man, I love those drawings so much. I don't want to throw them away. Whereas if you have thumbnails, you don't get so precious and you can work stuff really quick. And then, and then if you get that, then you can spend more time on the stuff that, that works and you get there faster and, and, and it's less painful. And that's my belief on, on, just like the, the, you know, don't, don't try to show off in the beginning. Just get your thoughts out as quick as possible. And also on a script, on a traditional script page, script format, if you are thumbnailing out your board as little thumbs on those script pages, which is the way I was taught by Yvette Kaplan, who was the supervising director on Beavis and Butthead. If it doesn't fit on that page, you probably have too many panels. You probably are trying to tell too much story, you know, it, it, or there's a fundamental problem with the action description of the script. But it's probably that you're doing too many, too many panels. So it's also a good measure of like if you can't fit your ideas in the margins of the page as little thumbnails, you're probably overdoing it and overboarding it. Is it hard to find a great storyboard artist? Always. It's a it's a really specific skill. And, and I'm probably harder on it because that's the way I came up because it's like a storyboard artist has to be an incredible draftsman. They have to be a great actor. They have to be a great cinematographer. They have to be great at blocking. They have to be great at editing. They have to be great at comedy if it's a comedy. They have to be great at action. Choreography if it's an action show. It's got so many they even have to design a lot of the times if you're starting up early and your design pack isn't finished out. So it's like you have to have like like 10 or 12 overlapping skill sets and be pretty damn good at all of them. Bizarrely enough, the least important one is often drawing. Because you know? <laughs> like you can always like work on it. And there's also, you know, often storyboard revisionists who can help put it on model and stuff. But um, I mean, you have to be good at drawing. But, you know, if you're really good at everything else, you don't have to be as good at drawing. Ah! Chirp. Criminal! Eject from that simulator or I will blast you in five, four, three, two, one. Get in. Just be here now. 
just be here now. 